So I'll, I'll start off by going over the CDC guideline. Uh, we conducted the systematic review that was used as the basis to develop the guideline, and I was also one of the authors on the guideline. I was detailed to the CDC um, during this process. Um, just a quick conflict of interest disclosure. All my funding is from federal agencies and from professional societies. I don't receive any industry funding. Um, so just, I mean, you just want to set the stage by giving a little bit of background on epidemiology, what's going on in terms of trends with prescribing. Um, I'm going to summarize real briefly the findings of our systematic review on risks and benefits. Um, and then going to talk a little bit about the CDC guideline process as well as the main recommendations and the rationale behind them. Um, as we all know in this room, chronic non-cancer pain is highly prevalent and associated with substantial burdens. Um, estimates vary depending on how chronic pain is measured, what population you're looking at, etc. cetera. Um, but some estimates are up to a third of adults have some type of chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, we all know that opioids in this country have become commonly prescribed for this condition. Uh, one study in a large health maintenance organization uh, found that 5% of adults were receiving long-term opioid therapy. That's one out of every 20 people. Um, and what we do in the United States is quite different and has been quite different from pretty much every other place in the world. We account for about 5% of the world's population, yet we use about 80% of the world's opioids. We use almost all of the hydrocodone, which is the number one prescribed drug in this country and has been for many years. Uh, opioids are unique. Um, like all medications, they cause harms, uh, but not only do they uh, cause harms to the person that you're prescribing to, but they have other societal implications. They cause harms to others uh, who aren't being prescribed the medications, and these are related to the abuse and addiction uh, potential, as we all know. Uh, this is a slide that uh, uh, many of you have probably seen before, this, uh, this uh, CDC slide. Uh, these just show kind of some of the trends we've seen in opioid prescribing. Uh, the green line um, is sales, and we see that over about a 10-year period, sales of opioids in this country uh, increased about fourfold. Um, and what we've seen is that in direct parallel with that, we've had increases in uh, uh, prescription-related opioid deaths, as well as treatments for opioid use disorder. Um, and then the statistic that a lot of people throw around is that opioids are now the most common cause for unintended uh, death in the United States. In uh, most states, at, that, at the time that this slide came out, it said it's 30. I think it's closer to 40 now. Um, and nationally, it's the most common cause of death. It, the motor vehicle accidents have always been the, the biggest cause of death. In, uh, in working age adults in this country and until just recently. Um, this slide just is, uh, I, I like to, sh to show this just to, this illustrates some of the societal implications of these medications. Um, on the right hand side you see more recent data and this is a survey that's done in uh, basically adolescents, high school kids and young adults. Um, the red line is um, adolescents, uh, basically kids 13 to 17 years old or 12 to 17. Um, uh, so junior high and high school kids, um, and about 8% report that they've used a prescription opiate medication, pain medication that wasn't prescribed to them, right? So that's one out of every 12 kids. These are junior high and high school kids. Um, and you don't see this with any other medication that I'm aware of. Um, the, the percentages go up, right? So high school seniors, it's 9 to 10%, and then young adults, 18 to 25. So these are our youth that are 
getting access to and using these medications. Um, and again, you don't see this with blood pressure medicines. You don't see it with you know, statins or whatever. Um, opioids are unique. Uh, this slide just shows some of the uh, other trends that we've seen. So in, in the um, heroin deaths, um, have actually been relatively steady until the last few years where we've seen a dramatic uptick. And I think this slide might help explain some of what we've seen. Um, if you uh, survey um, heroin users back in the 60s and 70s, the vast majority say that their first drug of abuse was heroin. Um, that pattern has completely reversed um, so that most heroin users now say that their first drug of abuse was a prescribed opioid. Um, and this may be contributing to the uptake we've seen in both heroin use as well as uh, heroin-related deaths. Uh, just a very brief word about opioid pharmacology. Um, the mu receptors of opioids mediate both the analgesic as well as the adverse effects. Uh, we have agonists, partial agonists, and antagonists. Uh, you can also classify them as natural opioids. These are the ones derived from the opium poppy. Uh, semi-synthetic opioids, and then the purely synthetic opioids, things like methadone and fentanyl, those have implications for me metabolic pathways and things like that. The half-life is two to four hours for most opioids, uh, but it's much longer and unpredictable for methadone, and this has implications for methadone safety, as we've seen. One of the unique things about opioids, of course, is that they cause the ongoing exposure causes tolerance. This means that you need to give bigger doses to get the same effects, uh, both the analgesic as well as the adverse effects. There is inter-individual variability in the development of tolerance, um, but we think it occurs in everybody. You can demonstrate this in lab animals. You can demonstrate this in you know, laboratory studies of people. Um, it pretty much occurs in everybody with uh, sustained use. And this is a quote from Chuck Interisi at Cornell. He says, there appears to be no limit to the development of tolerance and with appropriate dose adjustments, patients can continue to obtain pain relief. Uh, so this guided a lot of practice in terms of how we use these medications, this, this idea that there's no ceiling dose and we can you know, titrate up the doses slowly if we need to, but there's no maximum dose. And this is another thing that makes opioids unique. I, there really are very few other drugs that I can think of where there's no um, you know, maximum dose. This slide just illustrates the, um, uh, what happens uh, with a uh, pure agonist versus a partial agonist. So on the left, I think that's fentanyl. You can see that as you increase the fentanyl dose going uh, from left to right, um, ventilatory drive goes down, um, and you're not breathing uh, over on that right side, right? Um, whereas with uh, buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist, uh, with the lower doses as they go up, you see a decrease in, in ventilation, uh, but then that plateaus, so the, you get the inhibitory effects um, and things plateau uh, once you reach, reach a certain dose. So just uh, illustrating the difference uh, in pharmacology. So I think before we get into the guidelines, it's useful to kind of step back and just think about how did we get to this situation. Um, I think there's a number of factors, and, and understanding them may help us kind of address uh, some of the, the issues that we've uh, uh, found that we've run into. Uh, one is that there was a perceived undertreatment of chronic pain. Um, uh, the Harrison Act and kind of this, uh, all, all the stuff about not using opioids uh, medically, uh, we really weren't using opioids for treatment of chronic pain. That wasn't considered acceptable medical practice in most settings other than the palliative care or, or cancer pain setting. 
Um, and a lot of people started saying, why are we withholding what we think are the most effective analgesics uh, for people who have chronic pain and are suffering? Um, so and laws and regulations were actually passed in a number of states uh, to, make the, to be permissive about uh, treating um, chronic pain with opioids. Um, there was a perceived low risk of abuse observed with opioids. This was seen in palliative care settings and kind of uh, extrapolated to the chronic pain uh, non-palliative care world. Um, uh, this is a, a quote from uh, Russ Portnoy. He says, patients rarely demonstrate euphoric responses to opioid drugs and neither analgesic tolerance nor physical dependence is a significant clinical problem. Um, so again, this was seen in the palliative care setting and uh, extrapolated to chronic pain. At the same time, there were a few case series uh, that started trickling out um, on uh, use of opioids in people with chronic pain. So this is a letter to the editor. It's very brief. If you actually look it up, this is, you know, it's literally a paragraph or two. Um, and this has, thing has been cited, you know, hundreds of times and often used as uh, one of the rationales for using opioids. Um, uh, one of the things that isn't remembered uh, oftentimes is that most of those reports use relatively low doses. These are relatively um, uh, low-risk patients. Um, but again, this stuff was kind of extrapolated uh, to be applicable broadly in uh, most clinical settings. Um, again, this idea of no ceiling dose, that's something that we often do in palliative care settings. Patients with cancer pain often need high doses, and it's often appropriate to do so. Um, and this idea was kind of taken um, over to um, the chronic pain setting. Um, and then we had this emphasis on round-the-clock dosing with sustained-release formulations. Remember, all this stuff was happening around the time that sustained-release morphine and sustained-release oxycodone uh, were released. Both of those had unprecedented marketing pushes um, and became very widely prescribed drugs. Oxycodone was, in many places, was the most popular, was the, was the biggest cost to many state formularies, et cetera, at one time. Um, and so all these things, I, kind of, I think, kind of came together um, to create kind of a perfect storm. Uh, so uh, moving on to the CDC guideline, just a little bit of background. You know, um, the CDC uh, felt that there was a need to address pres prescription opioid prescribing as a public health problem, given all the things that we are seeing uh, with uh, unintentional deaths, overdose deaths, opioid use uh, disorder, et cetera. Um, the guideline, they, they felt that guidelines had been developed by a number of states and agencies, but there were inconsistencies in both the methods as well as the results, uh, which could be confusing to people. Um, there are some national guidelines. For example, I worked on the 2009 American Pain Society, American Academy of Pain Medicine guideline, um, but those really, the evidence is getting outdated for those. It's almost, you know, getting on eight, nine years uh, for those. Um, and a lot of clinicians report uncertainty about how to prescribe guidelines, and they, clinicians say they want clear, consistent guidance. This is something people struggle with, particularly primary care physicians, uh, of whom I am one. Um, so this was targeted at primary care uh, providers. Um, uh, I think one of the questions that you may ask yourself is, is whether these principles should apply across all settings. Uh, the CDC didn't really, um, doesn't really say one way or the other. They, their specific target was at primary care docs. The target population is adults with chronic pain. Um, we didn't try to address palliative care, um, uh, cancer pain, et cetera. Um, um, 
I think that uh, most people acknowledge that, there's, that cancer pain is a very heterogeneous, diverse group, and how you define cancer pain and all that stuff is actually probably a little bit more complicated than we've traditionally done. Um, but again, the CDC guideline doesn't go there. Uh, this slide just illustrates the process. Um, it was a pretty long and involved process. Um, I know this is hard to read. This isn't meant to kind of for you to see, you know, all the little steps, but just to recognize that there was a, a process. Um, it started with a systematic review that we conducted. This was funded by AHRQ. We presented it at an NIH Pathways to Prevention workshop. That was in 2015. Uh, CDC asked us to update the review and supplement it with additional questions, so we did that. Um, they they um, uh, created a bunch of stakeholder groups and expert working groups that helped develop the guidelines. Um, uh, it went out for public comment. This thing got, you know, thousands of public comments. This is not a, you know, one of these. I work on some guidelines where we get ten comments. This wasn't one of those. Um, so there's a lot of comment and feedback. Um, and then eventually it was released. I think it was published in March, uh, both in MMWR as well as in JAMA. Um, so this just summarizes the key questions that we addressed uh, in our evidence review. One focused on effectiveness and comparative effectiveness. One looked at harms and adverse events of long-term opioid therapy. One looked at different dosing strategies. So, for example, round-the-clock sustained release dosing versus PRN or immediate release dosing. One question looked at risk mitigation strategies. This included urine drug testing, PDMP monitoring, you know, use of naloxone, uh, all sort, all these things that we do in clinic to try to uh, mitigate risks of opioids. And then one of the one of the questions that CDC asked us to add was to look at um, how using opioids for acute pain impacts long-term use. Um, so um, this summarizes the findings of our systematic review. Um, one is that we have no long-term data on pain and function. So there's no placebo-controlled trial that's even longer than six months. The vast majority of studies are shorter than 12 months, uh, 12 weeks, excuse me. This isn't a huge surprise, I don't think. Most of these studies are done for regulatory purposes, and, you know, the FDA doesn't require long studies. And once these drugs are out there and they're um, being used, um, there's not a huge incentive to do long-term studies. It's also difficult, of course, to do these studies. There's a lot of dropout. These, these studies are not easy to do. Um, the, the, the effects are, you know, small to moderate for pain versus placebo. We're talking somewhere around, you know, uh, one and a half to two points on a 10-point scale versus placebo. For function, the evidence is more limited, and in some studies, it's hard to see that uh, we actually have improved function. Um, so that begs the question of if somebody says that their pain is one or two points better, but their function is no better, um, is that really an optimal outcome? Um, studies looking at rates of opioid dependence in primary care estimate that the, that it ranges from 3 to 26 percent. Again, this varies depending on what questions you're asking, what population you're looking at. Uh, we have recent data on this, this dose-dependent risk of overdose. Um, this is really stuff that's come out in the last five or six years. These are all observational studies, um, so they have all the potential flaws of observational studies, but the findings are consistent. Um, in many people's opinion, uh, they're pretty convincing, despite, you know, the potential for some confounding, et cetera. Um, 
Uh, and on the flip side, we actually don't have good evidence that cranking up the doses um, results in better pain relief. And I think most of us have seen this in clinical practice, at least in some patients, that people don't respond to low doses. You can increase the dose as much as you want, and they're still going to have pretty severe pain. So it seems that some people are just not very responsive to opioids. We found no clear differences between round-the-clock and or long-acting dosing versus PRN and or immediate-release dosing. You know, this was the teaching 15 years ago, is that everybody with chronic pain should be transitioned to long-acting, round-the-clock dosing. Um, and we don't have good evidence that that's actually beneficial in terms of, you know, either improve pain or decrease risk of adverse events. Um, uh, we do know that initiating with long-acting opioids is associated with increased risk of overdose, and it's done in a surprising number of people, even though the labeling all says that you shouldn't initiate. Uh, in, in opioid-naive patients shouldn't be started on long-acting opioids. Uh, several practices appear to be associated with higher risk of overdose. This includes using methadone uh, for some of the reasons I, I mentioned before with the half-life as well as possibly the QTC prolongation issue and then use of concomitant use of benzodiazepines, which is surprisingly common um, and seen in a very high proportion of overdose-related deaths. Benzos by themselves don't seem to be associated with a particularly high rate of overdose, but when you combine those two medications, uh, there seem to be additive or synergistic effects. We have some risk prediction instruments, but their accuracy is inconsistent and appears to be suboptimal. Um, and we see some studies that show that if you use opioids for, uh, quote-unquote, minor surgeries, so, so a cataract surgery, you know, vein surgery, that kind of thing, um, that those people are more likely to be on an opioid if you look at them again a year later than people who didn't receive opioids. So how we use these medications um, in the acute setting seems to impact long-term patterns. So there's 12 recommendations. They're grouped into three um, group, uh, areas. One is when to initiate or continue opioids. One is on opioid selection, dosing, duration, follow-up, and discontinuation. And the third is on assessing and mitigating uh, harms. Uh, we, we categorize their recommendations as strong, meaning that we think it should be done pretty routinely in most patients, or conditional, which means, yeah, it should be done in most cases, but there are some circumstances where you may um, choose uh, another uh, uh, line of treatment. Uh, the supporting evidence was classified as one, which is well-done RCTs, to four, which is, you know, weak observational studies. Um, and unfortunately, almost all the evidence is um, grade three or four. The first recommendation is non-pharmacological therapy and non-opioid pharmacologic therapy are preferred for chronic pain. Consider opioids only if the expected benefits are anticipated to outweigh the risks. If you do use opioids, combine them with non-opioid therapies. Uh, we know that a number of non-opioid therapies are effective for chronic pain. Uh, in a lot of the studies, uh, the benefits aren't that much different from opioids. So this perception that opioids are, you know, hugely effective for chronic pain really isn't borne out by the data that we see. And with things like exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy, and some of the non-opioid medications, we see, uh, you know, mean estimates of pain relief that are about a point or so versus placebo, which is not that much different from what we see uh, with opioids. Um, 
so the recommendation is to use exercise, CBT, other non-pharmacological therapies, and there are a number of non-opioid pharmacologic therapies that can also be used. All of those have much fewer um, harms um, than we see with opioids, right? Nobody overdoses from too much CBT or whatever. Um, and if you are going to use opioids, you know, don't use opioids alone, right? Um, giving somebody a pill doesn't address the psychosocial factors that we know are so critical in pain. Um, so we need to approach pain from a biopsychosocial approach and, and use opioids as part of multimodal therapy. Second recommendation, before starting opioid therapy, establish treatment goals, including goals for pain and function, have a plan for discontinuation if benefits don't outweigh risks, only continue opioid therapy if there's clinically meaningful improvement in pain that outweigh risks. Uh, we want to be explicit about expected benefits. If somebody expects that opioids are going to take away their pain, you know, you're going to you know, you're not going to get there probably, number one. And number two, that's kind of, uh, I think, one of the issues that has uh, led to these dose escalations that we've seen in the past. Know how you're going to um, uh, 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 determine effectiveness. This includes establishing treatment goals. Um, and again, we want to focus on function, not just, not just a, a pain score. That We want to see people that are being able to engage in life, work, do the things that they want to do. If you talk to people, actually, I mean, people, we often assume that people with pain want their pain to be away, and that's, I think, true partly, but oftentimes if you ask them, they'll say, I want my life back, which is really a functional statement and very different from just, you know, they want their pain score to go from 8 to 2 or whatever. There are a number of items that we can use to assess function. A simple one is the PEG tool. This was developed by Aaron Krebs in Minnesota. It's a three-item tool easy to incorporate into workflows and EMRs, etc. Um, it's derived from the brief pain inventory. 30% improvement is considered clinically meaningful. The third recommendation is before starting and periodically during opioid therapy, discuss, known, discuss risks and realistic benefits, as well as clinician responsibilities. Uh, we, want to, we want patients to know about the serious and common adverse effects, including risk of overdose as well as opioid use disorder. They, we want them to know that higher doses are associated with increased risks and that combining opioids with other medications and substances can be uh, uh, risky. And then periodic re reassessment that we're going to be doing, including PDMP checks and urine checks. These are routine. Um, these should be routine, um, and patients shouldn't feel like they're being singled out um, for these. Uh, when starting opioid therapy, prescribe immediate release opioids instead of extended release, long-acting opioids. Um, uh, again, that should be, I think, you know, standard. I mean, we should know this already, and, and the labeling already clearly indicates that, but a recent study from the VA showed that a surprisingly high proportion of patients uh, who are naive to opioids are started on long-acting opioids, and uh, they have an increased risk of overdose in that initiation period. Uh, in general, we want clinicians to avoid the use of immediate release opioids combined with ER LA opioids. Uh, this is just, it makes things more complicated. Um, methadone is generally not the first choice for opioids. It's cheap, right, which is one of the reasons why we were using it a lot at one point. Um, but it has tricky our pharmacokinetics, and it's unpredictable. Um, and the QTC issues, I mean, there's just a lot of factors that make methadone uh, more difficult to use. Um, so in general, I mean, there may be circumstances to use it. I certainly have a few patients who are on it. Um, 
um, but we need to be careful with it. Uh, same with transdermal fentanyl, the pharmacokinetics can be um, uh, tricky. Uh, the next recommendation when opioids are started, prescribe the lowest effective dosage, uh, pretty straightforward. Uh, use caution when prescribing at any dose. Um, uh, as the dose gets up, reassess the uh, benefits and risks when you get up to 50 milligram morphine equivalents per day. Avoid increasing to over 90 a day. Um, if you are going to use doses more than 90 a day, uh, you should be able to document and, and be able to see that uh, patients are experiencing incremental benefits uh, that outweigh harms. Um, this, study, uh, this slide excuse me, summarizes the, some of the evidence we have on uh, opioid dose and risk of overdose. So these are four large, fairly well done observational studies. You can see even at relatively low doses, 20 to 50 milligram morphine equivalents, you start to see some increased risk. By the time you hit 50, it's more substantial than when you get to 100. Uh, in some of those studies, it's quite big. You have an eight to seven, I guess it's a six to eight fold uh, increase in risk in some of those studies. Um, uh, again, start with the lowest dose, increase gradually. This is chronic pain. There's, you know, um, you know, I, I, we want to give patients pain relief, but we need to do it in a safe manner, and oftentimes that means going slow. Um, uh, the, so people have asked about how those numbers were picked in terms of the dose thresholds, um, and they are to some extent arbitrary, but we have to have those numbers in the guidelines or else nobody knows what it means if we say avoid high doses. So we, we have to put some numbers in there. Um, uh, some of the factors that these are based on is that, again, in those studies that I just showed you, by the time you hit 50 milligram morphine equivalents, um, you start to see some substantial increased risk in quite a few studies. Um, and then also a pretty high proportion of the overdose deaths actually occur in people on relatively low doses. In some of the studies, the average dose in the overdoses is, is around 60 or 70 milligram morphine equivalents per day. So you don't have to be on super high doses uh, to overdose. Um, so those were some of the rationales. Um, if you go above 50, reassess pain and function, as well as a treatment plan, increase frequency of follow-up, consider offering naloxone. So this is in case of accidental overdose. It can be given by family members, bystanders, et cetera. Avoid going over 90. If you do go above, again, uh, discuss and offer other pain therapies to the patient. Uh, uh, consider tapering, particularly if they're not benefiting. Um, and consider consultation. Uh, this is one of the trickiest things we see in clinical practice. Patients who come to you, they've been on high doses for many years. Um, for established patients, um, you know, we should offer the opportunity to taper. Many of these patients don't know what it's like to be off of opioids. It's been so long. They don't know, you know, and, and, they're, and they deal with withdrawal and all these other things, and we actually haven't given them a, a good chance to taper. So, you know, we want to offer them the taper, the, the opportunity to taper. Um, uh, and I talk to them about the increased risk, and I'll tell them, you know, a lot of them will say, well, I've been on this dose for many years, and I'm not having any problems. Why are you, you know, trying to mess with my drugs? And I'll say, you know, it's like going down the highway at 130 miles an hour. You may not have any problems now, but you're still at high risk. That seems to be an analogy that people, you know, can understand, and I think it's accurate. I want to get them to 90 miles an hour or 50 or whatever. Um, if you are going to taper, work with the patients on the tapering plan. The next recommendation, if you use opioids for acute pain, use the lowest effective dose, use immediate release opioids and limit the quantities. Uh, in most cases, we think uh, three to seven days 
um, is adequate. Uh, you know, you need to kind of match the amount you prescribe uh, to the severity and expected duration of the pain. Try to avoid this practice of giving additional opioids just in case, right? This is why, this is how a lot of opioids end up in the medicine cabinet. Uh, Reevaluate patients with acute pain. That's kind of out of proportion to what you think uh, should be expected. Uh, and again, don't use extended release or long-acting opioids for acute pain. There are a number of risk mitigation strategies, so just wanted to kind of list some of them here. One is use lower doses, don't use long-acting opioids when starting therapy, more frequent follow-up, monitoring, this includes urine drug testing, PDMP monitoring, avoiding benzos and other sedative hypnotics, uh, diagnosing and treating opioid use disorder, right? This is something that we lack in primary care and we should be much better at. This is a potentially life-saving intervention. Consulting with your specialist when you need to. More frequent refills with smaller quantities, abuse deterrent formulations, uh, naloxone. Uh, so the seventh recommendation, reevaluate patients within one to four weeks. Um, evaluate every three months or so in patients on continued therapy. Um, and if they're not getting better, we need to stop or taper the therapy. I mean, this is you know, something we do with pretty much every other medication. If somebody's blood pressure isn't getting better on a blood pressure medicine, we make changes. We stop it, we start another medication, whatever. Uh, this is much more difficult for us to do with opioids. Uh, we think people should be followed. The, the initiation period is a high-risk period, as I mentioned earlier. So there's a disproportionate number of overdoses that occur uh, in the first few weeks. Uh, so we want to do follow-up then and then every three months or so. Um, and then at every follow-up, we need to reevaluate the patient and, again, reassess that benefit-to-risk ratio. Uh, tapering opioids, uh, we should work with uh, we should taper patients when they're not getting sustained clinically meaningful improvements, when the, the opioid doses are high and they're not experiencing benefit, if they're on benzos that we can't taper off, if the patients are requesting it, um, and if their patients have had an overdose. One of one recent, couple of recent studies have actually shown that patients who have an overdose event, a lot of them just get put right back on the same dose again, um, and that's probably not optimal care. Um, we don't have great data to guide tapering practices. Um, the rule of thumb that the CDC and experts say is 10% per week. Uh, in clinical practice, we often do it much slower than that, and we may have some discussion about that later. Uh, optimize non-opioid therapies as much as you can. Um, recommendation eight, um, before starting and during therapy, evaluate risks for opioid-related harms and incorporate risk mitigation strategies. Naloxone is something that we think is underused, um, and we should at least be thinking about using it and, and, and getting it out there for higher-risk patients. The, the next recommendation um, basically is use PDMP data. This is to find, to, to verify that patients are taking prescribed drugs and whether there's any unprescribed or illicit medications or dangerous combinations. Uh, there's no good data on how frequently to check it. Um, the committee came up with, you know, every three months or so. Some people felt that it should be checked every time. Um, most of you probably have access to the PDMP and know that it can be cumbersome to, to work with. So I think that's one of the barriers that we need to want to try to address. Um, if patients are getting uh, prescriptions from multiple sources on high doses or on dangerous combinations, we need to discuss the safety implications with the patients. Um, again, consider tapering, consider offering naloxone, evaluate and treat opioid use disorder, as I mentioned before. 
Um, and this isn't about dismissing patients for care or, or judging patients. We want to, you know, we're trying to judge them medically and trying to treat them uh, safely. Um, and again, it's, the it's an opportunity to provide them with potentially uh, life-saving interventions and treatments. Uh, we think urine drug testing should be obtained before starting opioids and periodically during therapy. Um, it, it can be tricky. Um, you need to be familiar with urine drug testing panels and how to interpret the results. Uh, don't test for substances that wouldn't affect patient management. Uh, before ordering testing, explain that testing is routine and intended to prove their safety. Um, I ask patients whether, you know, whether there's anything unexpected that I should see, and sometimes you get surprising uh, results. A lot of people will tell me about their marijuana use because we're in Oregon. Um, uh, discuss unexpected patients with the lab as well as with patients. Verify unexpected results. And again, this isn't about catching somebody or, or you know, or, or kicking them out of practice. It's about being able to prescribe in a safe manner. Again, avoid prescribing opioids and benzos together whenever possible. Uh, we've seen, uh, as I mentioned before, these, this combination appears to be risky. Uh, benzo tapers can be tricky on people that have been on higher doses. Uh, um, and so you may need to get help with that. Uh, we have better treatments for anxiety, depression, the things that people often get benzos for. There really aren't that many conditions where benzos are considered first-line or even a second-line treatment anymore. Uh, so we need to use our effective therapies and get away from therapies that aren't uh, safe um, and coordinate our care as needed. Um, and this is just one more plug for medication-assisted treatment uh, in patients who have opioid use disorder. If we've, if we've contributed to patients developing opioid use disorder, we need to be able to identify it and treat it. I have a buprenorphine waiver and hopefully more primary care providers um, will do that as well. Um, so this is just a little bit on opioid use disorder. Uh, there are a number of uh, free training to get waivers if you're interested in doing that, uh, including from PCSS, which is sponsored by SAMHSA. So in conclusion, the data on long-term benefits of opioids is sparse. Opioids may have little effect on function uh, or even worsen them in some studies. We have better evidence about dose-dependent risks of opioids with limited evidence that cranking up the doses uh, results in greater benefits. No opioid is safe. You know, um, these, these abuse deterrent formulations, all these other things are coming out, but I, I think the, what we've learned over the last, remember heroin was, tried, was developed as a safer alternative to morphine. Um, so we, we don't have a safe opioid. Uh, we need to treat all of these medications with respect and not think that, you know, uh, just a new formulation or new uh, whatever is going to uh, uh, solve all these issues. Uh, the available evidence suggests that benefits and risks are finely balanced and I think justify a more cautious approach. Uh, this includes being more selective about who we prescribe opioids to, using non-opioid therapies uh, preferentially when we can, avoiding high doses, um, assessing risk as part of standard practice, uh, routine integration of risk mitigation strategies, uh, identifying high-risk prescribing practices and doing something about them, uh, focusing on function, not just improvements in pain scores. Um, and, of course, we need a lot of policy efforts. You know, we, we may not be able to get the interdisciplinary rehab and some of these other treatments that we think are effective. So uh, we recognize that, um, but hopefully the guideline uh, is a step in that direction. Uh, so I'm done. This is just some re references and resources, and I'm going to hand it over to Brett.
being here. Uh, imagine, if you will, uh, a picture of Mount Rainier with wildflowers in the front. That was the background originally on the slide I submitted. <laughs> Not quite there, so you have to kind of picture that just a touch as we get started. So I'm going to cover somewhat familiar territory from what, as, as to what Roger just covered, but in with a different take on it a little bit. I have nothing to, dis to disclose specifically related to opioids or this talk. And it's always good to start with a question, right, with a little quiz. So you just heard a talk about the CDC guidelines, so let's come up with a, an answer to this, these, these questions. Regarding the 2016 CDC guidelines for prescribing opioids for chronic pain, which of these is the true statement? A, the guideline has the force of U.S. law behind it. B, doses above 90 milliequivalents or MMEs a day are not allowed. C, extra precautions are advised for those with doses above 50. For most chronic pain patients, benefits of opioid therapy outweigh risks. Or E, prescription drug monitoring programs have not been found to have any value in clinical decision making. So what do you guys think the right answer is? C, absolutely. So we will be talking about that as we go forward. So there's our goals for today, our objectives, which I'm not going to read to you. Let's talk about opioids a little bit. They're amazing substances. They can relieve every type of pain. You can give them by more routes of administration than any other class of medication. You know, here there's people selling a buckle, transdermal, IV, oral, multiple formulations, rectal, iontophoresis, many, many ways you can give opioids. You can inhale them, of course, as well. There's multiple formulations. There's abuse deterrent ones. There's ones that are, come with an additional ingredient added in, all kinds of, of formulations and variations of opioids. There's a gigantic dosage range, as Roger mentioned, with no limits. There's not great consensus on how to use them. They may not benefit many chronic pain patients. And the real bonus thing is that they get special status in our life, right? They can be abused. They have street value. The DEA and, and each specific state has regulations specific to opioids. Um, they kill people, right? We saw they kill at least 15,000 Americans a year. They may promote pain, and there's many biases, and et cetera. So it's a complicated issue. So why do we use them? What's the attraction of opioids? When you say pain medicine, what's your patient thinking? Opioid. When you chat with people and use the word pain medicine, what are you thinking? Opioid. So this is, in our language, what we think about as pain medicine and pain treatment. So they think that that is the standard of care for treatment, to give me the pain medicine that you have, doctor, and you can give to me. The other thing is, you feel them working often. People who take opioids feel something in addition to pain relief. There's a reinforcing feeling component to it. They are anxiolytics. They decrease anxiety. They kind of numb things a little bit. They sedate you a little bit. They, quote, help me get to sleep. I can't get a good night's sleep without my opioid at nighttime. Let's do some polysomnography and see what that looks like, right? Not quite so normal, necessarily. Pretty much every pharmacy and every hospital has them. You can be in the smallest little remote community. They have opioids. Do they have someone doing cognitive behavioral therapy? Probably not. They can be transported to the most anywhere in the world in a little bottle. 
So you don't have to you know, bring along your exercise equipment with you. It's in a bottle. The only active part of treatment is getting them and taking them. Insurance favors them over many other treatments that are safer, potentially, or, and also potentially effective. And the other thing is, you give the prescription, the patient walks up and leaves. The encounter is over. You're done, right? They, they got what they came from, kind of, and, and uh, you can move on to your next patient. You've seen this data with the increasing deaths. It's important to bear this in mind and realize that this really is a problem. This is really our problem. This is iatrogenic. This is prescribed medications that are prescribed. These aren't being trafficked in from Mexico or from Canada or from China or Europe or some other source. These are prescribed medications that end up killing people. And healthcare professionals are the prescribers. No insurance company is prescribing. No state agency is prescribing. It's us. So we have to take ownership of this. Look at that map. That's pretty scary. North Dakota looks like the safest place to live. <laughs> Pretty clearly. The map from 10 years before looks quite different. It's gone up everywhere, even in North Dakota. So you've heard some of these facts. It's just worth kind of thinking about them again as we talk. You know, altogether, opioids are involved in the death of 28,000 people, including heroin. Um, almost Around half of them involve prescription medications, opioid deaths. About 2 million Americans, that's quite a few, um, abused or depend upon prescription opioids. As many as one in four people who use prescription opioids may have a problem with misuse. Every day, about 1,000 people show up in the emergency department wanting treatment or seeking treatment or needing treatment for misusing prescription medications. And if you look at just that period of time, 15-year period of time, 165,000 deaths in our country. That's a lot. These are big numbers. This is serious stuff. So there's a bunch of challenges here. First is most opioids are prescribed by primary care providers. Only the select few chronic pain patients ever see a pain specialist, around 2%, one estimate. Chronic low back pain, number one indication for opioids. Um, most common medication prescribed for chronic low back pain, opioids. Um, and the evidence is not very convincing that it really helps in the long, long run for chronic low back pain. Starting opioids is associated with developing new onset of depression. Interesting, right? There's potentially increased risk for things like sleep apnea, both central and obstructive. Automobile collisions, fractures, hormonal disruption, and potentially more pain. And the culture really has changed from this, the quotes that Roger gave you from Russ Portnoy and colleagues about there's no limits, keep going, dependence is not a problem, to really we no longer think there's no limits. And then the hard truth is once you're on them, it's really hard to get off them. So every state has their own version of, of a problem like this. So my state. Washington, my new state, I used to be an Oregonian, um, but my new state um, was one of the first places to kind of come up with statewide state guidelines about how to start, start putting a limit on opioid dosing, and it actually decreased the average uh, uh, prescription per capita in the state of Washington early in this uh, issue. But we continue to have things. This, this is this summer. There was a 
large pain practice shut down. They're taking care of 25,000 people with 8,000 people on opioids. It went from making the Seattle Times newspaper on a Friday to Tuesday, essentially no more prescriptions being provided by any of those providers. So 8,000 people out seeking opioid prescription. Pretty amazing. So this can happen to you too. That means you can have patients show up in your practice on big doses of opioids, prescribed by somebody else, saying help. It's challenging. So when we're starting opioids, be selective. Know your patient. Focus on non-opioid treatment first. From the last talk, follow those CDC guidelines, which we'll review. And don't say never. It, saying never makes no sense. There are practices that say, we don't prescribe opioids. So if I break my ankle and you're my doctor, you're not going to give me any opioids? Nope. No, we don't prescribe opioids. Who thinks that that is compassionate, reasonable care? Anybody? I don't think so. Who thinks that the, the proportion of chronic pain patients who would benefit from opioids is zero? Absolutely zero. Not 0 0.5, but zero. I don't. Most of you don't. So don't say never. Please. So this is my short version of these CDC guidelines we just went over. Clinical reminders. Opioids are not first-line treatments. Have goals. Discuss the benefits and the risk with your patients. Those are the first three. Much shorter than Roger's version, <laughs> but crystallized down. His were detailed and, and really good and give you the background. Number four, really prescribe immediate release opioids, I, which I can't even read my slides now. Um, and then number five, you should use the lowest effective dose and remember about treating acute pain appropriately. I actually thought about this on the plane here. How many of you have been prescribed opioids for surgery or an injury? How many of you still have them in your medicine cabinet? I'm embarrassed to say I do. I had surgery in April, and I realized as I was coming here, hmm, those are still sitting in my home, and I have kids, and maybe this isn't the safest thing. <laughs> Sorry. I'm confessing up here. Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I have sinned. Um, you should think about the benefits and risks uh, with your patients. You should evaluate the risk for opioid-related harms, check the PDMP, use urine drug testing, avoid concurrent benzodiazepines, and if they have substance abuse treatment, arrange for that. One more show of hands. How many people think there are adequate substance abuse treatment facilities near you? No one raised their hand. I, I, why is that, I wonder? <laughs> it is a huge problem. It's a recommendation here. It's really important. We all see the benefit of it. It is tough when the rubber meets the road to do, to do this. Okay. So I actually went through the report and called out a couple other highlights, um, emphasizing the 50 milliequivalents a day and above and being increased risk, using additional precautions, um, using caution about going above 90 milliequivalents, and then taking additional risk to mitigate overdose risk in the patients who you do prescribe over there. So that means naloxone. So I have a smart phrase in EPIC now, which is .cdc naloxone, and I put it in the after-visit summary, and I say 
to the patient. I calculate your dose using the state of Washington dose calculator, um, and your dose is above this 50. We're supposed to have a discussion about the risk of, of overdose and think about what would happen if you did that and how you might prevent accident, we might prevent accidental death. And I talked about naloxone, and we, we come up with a plan for how to deal with this. This is a powerful conversation. This is a meaningful conversation to a lot of patients. You're not judging them. You're just saying, here's the data. So, first time to prescribe. A patient new to you. Wait a second. Let me just check something. Darn it. This is not the slide I want to be showing. Okay. Um, check their prior records. Check the PDMP. You need to see what the clinicians were doing with them before. You need to see the story. We take their pain history, how long they've had pain, what kind of pain they've had, where all, where all they've hurt, how it's been treated, how it impacts their life. Look at their other medical problems and how they might impact your treatment decisions. It's also important to assess the impact on function, mood, work, recreation, health, family, etc. Um, I like to ask patients questions like, what do you think is causing the pain? And what do you think needs to be done? Those are very revealing questions. Review their entire prior history. Do a real physical exam, a meaningful physical exam, and do any appropriate testing you need to evaluate the underlying medical condition. This is my initiating opioid therapy slide, which way predates the CDC guidelines. And I went through this and looked at this, and, and really there's nothing here that's I changed much. I just kind of mentioned the CDC guidelines in here. But everything else in here I wrote down six years ago. So these are not like new things that came out of left field. These are based upon literature that's been around for a while. The guidelines I used to like a lot beforehand were the Canadian prescribing guidelines. They had a very high upper dose limit, but they're a nice, reasonable, rational guideline. So first is, we all live in different parts of the United States. You need to know the rules for your state. Your state gives you your license to practice. The federal government doesn't. The Drug Enforcement Agency issues you the ability to prescribe controlled substances, but not to practice medicine. So you need to know your state rules as well as DEA rules. Know those CDC guidelines we just reviewed again. If you look at doctors who get into trouble, they don't document a history, physical, prior treatments, and medical decision-making in a meaningful way. Document those things in a meaningful way, please. Assess the patient for risk for diversion. Use some type of assessment tool that you know how to use. So we have at the, my pain center, the Center for Pain Relief at University of Washington, a thing called the pain tracker, which is also used in the neighborhood clinics. Anybody with on opioid therapy in the, in the neighborhood clinics get it. Everybody coming to our patient, to our clinic gets it. It assesses mood, it assesses function, it assesses opioid risk, assesses sleep apnea risk to kind of give us a picture of the patient before we prescribe anything. Use, I like to use a consent form. We're going we're gonna to be giving you something that has risks and potential benefits. Let's kind of talk about it and use a consent. When I was an Oregonian, there was a state consent form to use, and it was a really helpful thing. It took a long time to let it, for the state to let us modify it to make it more uh, friendly language, which we eventually did. 
Also, the consent form talks about the risks and benefits, but there's also a behavioral agreement. Who likes the 4.30 p.m. refill call on a Friday? No one does, right? Is that appropriate? Not usually. Um, so some of the behavioral agreements about things, how, how you work things with refills, et cetera. Outline the goals. Look at other sedating medications, particularly benzodiazepines. Discuss driving and other risky behaviors with the patient. Outline your other treatments. Consult with other providers if you need to. Document that the medication will be stopped if there's no meaningful response. And consider urine toxicology screen. So now I'd move that up to perform urine toxicology screen. That's probably the one thing I would change in that. So we talked about all those things. Do all those things. Oh, this is the duplication. This is the slide. It's my newer version. It's different if it's an established patient. You already know their history. If it's a new patient, you really, really, really need to have those prior records to see what they've been like. Why are they new to you? Why are they coming to you now? You need to really review that. And you really want to feel like you know the patient before you prescribe the medication for them. When I prescribe, I make it really clear. This is not meant to be standalone treatment. I make it really clear. We're working together. We should be a treatment dyad, at least, to make it safe and effective. And that the patient's responsibilities aren't just to pop the pill, but they really have to engage actively in other, other aspects of the treatment. And I also talk about if the dose is above 50, that they're increased risk of death and that they need a naloxone co-prescription. I also make it clear that we'll lower the dose if it's high, if there's not a meaningful response, if there's side effects that are severe, there's safety issues, or if you're not following the rules we've just outlined together. And I also make it clear that I'm not going to be prescribing opioids if you're on benzodiazepines. Other people say, you know, consider, suggest. I say, I don't do it. That's me. Okay, so the elephant in the room is what? The patient's coming for a follow-up visit, expecting to leave with a prescription in their hand. So before every refill, pause and think, okay, so am I going to put my signature and my DEA number on a piece of paper for this patient in front of me? So assess their compliance, their response, adverse effects, mood, participation in treatment, aberrant behaviors. Document it. Again, you don't want to get in trouble. Document it. Discuss driving, other activity and function. See the patient on a regular basis. Review the goals. Perform a history and physical on a regular basis. Consider urine toxicology screening on a random basis after you've started the medication. Only adjust the dose in the context of a visit and you reassessing the patient, deciding it's a good idea. Don't give unscheduled refills. Utilize adjuvant treatments. Discuss inconsistencies. And if it's not working, stop it. So one way to remember that, the shorthand is the four A's. I hope some of you are familiar with the four A's. Um, the keynote speaker created them. Yes, Steve Pasek, his name, I, I referenced him. He's not, he's a, the reference is at the bottom. OK. Yeah, what a small world. <laughs> Analgesia, does the patient have effective pain relief? Adverse effects, are they severe, limiting, or are they under control? Activity, is there meaningful improvement in activity? Any evidence of aberrant behaviors? If you don't get the right answers, time to stop. Okay, so that's the easy part, right? Now the hard part. Tapering when to do it, how to do it, et cetera. 
This is a crash course. This is not how to taper. This is like an overview of how to taper. This could be several hours, a whole session. So first is you make the decision. The dose is too high or the dose is going up without a good response. The improvement's not adequate. The side effects are too great. The compliance is a problem. Risks are too high. There's increasing depression or worsening pain or more headaches or patient is interested, comes into you and says, hey, I'd like to taper off my medications. Um, pain's improved by other means, which could be the, the physical therapy, the duloxetine, the, the procedures they had, whatever. The pain's better. Or it's distracting from other treatments. There's some suggestive evidence that people on opioids are less likely to get, to get routine health care. They come to their visit, and their visit is about discussing their opioids, not about their blood pressure and things like that. So here's my patient scenario that kind of Roger alluded to, metoprolol. The dose at 200 milligrams a day, blood pressure elevated, pulse not low, multiple side effects, nothing else has been tried for blood pressure. Patient says, you know, I sometimes take an extra when I think my blood pressure is up. Would you give them more of this? Would anybody give them more? Of course not. But if it's an opioid, sure. We do this all the time. We, the collective us, we do this all the time. But we wouldn't do it for this, so why were we doing it for opioids? There's a review published just recently in the New England Journal of Medicine about opioid use disorders. It's a reasonable review. There's a couple things I don't really like. One is they talk about using benzos a little bit more than I like, um, which is not necessarily a good thing. But it goes to the diagnostic criteria for opioid use disorders. Again, I have this as a smart phrase in our electric record so I can review it with the patient and say, here's why I'm giving you this diagnosis, rather than I just think you're a drug abuser. So here's a couple of success stories. You really can taper successfully. First one, educated woman. Turns out she's a PhD. Um, on a big dose of opioids, 240 milliequivalents, um, for back and left leg pain. She works full-time, full-time 100% compliant. Her PCP was uncomfortable with the dose, and they had set new practice guidelines saying this was too high of a dose for them to prescribe, so she wanted to come down. So we tapered it over about six months down to 50 mil equivalents, and she liked it. She said, I have, libido. I have a libido. My husband loves this. I feel so much better, and I'm sharper. I'm able to focus. My mind works better. Next guy, 60-year-old guy, big dose of opioids, comes in to see me as a consult. His pain started as back pain, now it's his whole body. Um, tender everywhere you touch him, and it's, all these places are equivalent in their intensity of pain. I counseled him, and I, and I said to him, you know, really, this isn't helping you. Your pain's only gotten worse and more widespread since you've been on opioids, so why don't we taper off? He went away, did nothing. A neighbor died of an overdose. The wake-up call was received. So he tapered over three months down to nothing, and then he came back to see me afterwards to kind of say, hey, look what I've done. And when he came back to see me, he said, my back pain is back like it was you know, five, ten years ago. The rest of my pain has basically melted away. Um, and this feels like normal pain. I move and I twist and it gets worse, and I take it easy, it gets better, and I know how to protect my back. The rest of the pain I had before was like all the time and, and nonstop. So he was very, very happy. So when tapering, I kind of think about what kind of pain is it? What are the non-medication treatments I give? What are the appropriate adjuvant non-opioid medications to think about? I look at their mental health. Tapering is stressful. Am I going to tip them over the edge with their anxiety or depression? Provide them appropriate support for the process. I don't abandon the patient unless they are 
trafficking in drugs and I, uh, that I prescribed. Um, and I think about their overall health. This is a lot of verbiage. And if you get copies of the slides, you can read the big, long paragraph I had over here originally. But what it says is a very compassionate discussion about people on high-dose opioids who you bring up the topic of, of tapering and how this is very stressful to them. And you should really think about doing it slowly and cautiously with pauses as you go down if there's an issue. This is a really well-thought-out statement about people on high-dose opioids being tapered. So this is my made-up time frame. I looked a little bit at, oh, there was a reference at the bottom, which I don't see. Um, I looked a little bit at a um, Department of Defense guideline about tapering. Um, but this is my made-up version. First is very slow taper. A compliant patient, you just want to explore to see if a lower dose is going to work. And it's not because they have big safety or compliance issues. It's because you know, they're in a big dose, and maybe a lower dose will be just as effective. So you go nice and slowly, pause if needed, and one of your therapeutic goals is to avoid withdrawal. Second category, a slow taper. Manageable concerns for safety, adverse effects, or compliance. Reduce every, the dose every few weeks by you know, 5 to 20%. Avoid withdrawal. Again, would be a goal. Third group, fast taper. You have real concerns about safety, adverse effects, or compliance. Reduce the dose quickly. Every week, come down, 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 down. Manage withdrawal should occur. And then there's the rapid taper group where there are major issues. You want to get off them, get them off their medications quickly. This can happen on a daily dose reduction basis. It really can happen. It really does happen. It's possible. But then there are exceptions to this. This is the don't taper, just stop group. Drug trafficking. Oh, you know, someone lets you know that your name is on a prescription bottle that was being sold down the street. You don't want that. Threats to personal safety or the conduct of your practice. I'm not going to give them another refill. Forging prescriptions. No need to taper that. They can do it on their own. <laughs> Complete non-engagement. They're not doing anything. They're showing up demanding the refill. No. A verifiable alternative source for their prescriptions. You don't need to give them. Again, they have their own source. Withdrawal takes on many variations and can appear in many different ways. It can be occur right now over the first few days, or it can be a long-term thing over the course of the next several months. So anxiety, sweating, cramping, runny nose, restless, pupils dilated, kind of think John Lennon singing about this. Later, runny nose and eyes, yawning, rapid breathing, tremor, spasms, GI symptoms, fever and chills, and prolonged as irritability, fatigue, and mood changes and weird sleep patterns. And consider scoring it. There's the, the COWS, the Clinical Opioid Withdrawal scale, scale, which you can scale, score. I'll show you this is in that New England Journal of Medicine article from earlier this year. In healthy people, withdrawal is not a big deal. In medically frail people, I mean, it's, it's a big deal. It's unlikely to kill them. In patients who are medically frail, it, it actually can, right? turns out being hypertensive and stuff if you have a, a, a tenuous cerebral vascular system it might be a problem etc um, so the cows is often used when people are being tapered off opioids to be put on, on uh, for induction for buprenorphine 
Adjuvants you can use for withdrawal symptoms. There's a whole bunch here. My wording here was pause before adding benzodiazepines. Everything on here has some sort of evidence base for use in, uh, in tapering and in limiting withdrawal. And this is the, really the important part here, is you need to support your patient and make sure they know that they can do this. This is a, let, let them know this is the safest path. Sometimes encourage the help of family members. Let them know that it's not just you, it's everybody in your practice is, is on the same page with this. Encourage them that they can do it. Celebrate their little successes every time they do something that you've asked them to do. Make sure that they know you're not abandoning them, that you are going to treat them and aren't going to treat their pain. We have a whole team here to help you. We have our social worker. We have whoever else is going to help with this process. Let's focus on your other things rather than the opioids. And there's a whole bunch of resources for patients that they can look at, including a couple of books from Beth Darnell, um, a, little wet, a cool little um, YouTube video about tapering opioids. Lots of different people can, can help with, with the resources. The other thing to think about in your practice is think about an opioid committee for those tough patients. We all know there are tough patients, and we all know it's hard to make the decision. So I used to go to a primary care clinic once a month when I was in Portland, and then we set up an opioid committee there in Richmond. And um, it sets policies and procedures. It helps with coming to consensus about what to do with patients who are more difficult to manage. And it really is a helpful, helpful thing to consider in your practice setting. And there's a whole bunch of resources for you. So the Surgeon General has a response to the opioid crisis, which is an excellent, beautifully done website called Turn the Tide Rx. I really suggest visiting that. It is very nice looking, and it has lots of good information. The CDC website, of course, has bucket loads of information in addition to the guidelines. And then there's pain organizations with, you know, that talk about alternate approaches. And of course, being at meetings like this helps you think about things besides just opioids. Buprenorphine requires the, the special training and the special waiver. Um, with naloxone, it's called Suboxone. Um, it is a helpful adjuvant. It's been shown to be potentially more effective than having people just go, quote, cold turkey and taper completely off if there's an opioid use issue. So in summary, the long-term solution to opioid crisis is to reduce the initial opioid prescription frequency and dose and kind of follow the CDC guidelines moving forward. Every refill, think about what you're doing before you sign that prescription. Use the lowest dose possible. Monitor the response, adverse effects, risks, and compliance. Taper those patients who are appropriate to taper. And use a team approach. Thank you very much. And the, the questions we'll take at the end. Thank you. So I'm going to make an assumption, and you can correct me. But each of you presented already information that suggests that opioids can be prescribed for chronic pain. And so maybe the question that we were trying to answer, the title of this presentation, I think was created by Pain Week, was can opioids be rational? Can opioids be rationally used for the management of chronic pain? And the, I think that maybe it's okay to say yes, they can, but it's not... An, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's a complex process. Um, and is that fair to say? Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So, I mean, I'm going to finish, and I definitely want to leave time for questions. So um, um, I'm, I'm going to just go from there, saying that we all then believe that opioids can be used rationally for chronic pain. 
there may be, we may all need to work very hard to figure out which patients in our practice that is the right approach, um, and we can talk about that further. These are disclosures. I sincerely do not think you will find me biased in any way, but that's for you to decide. I happen to work in different ways with industry, doing research, investigating the trials, but it's your decision if you think I'm biased. I don't think you'll think that. Um, these are our learning objectives. I'm also going to go by this as well. And I think something that really is something that was emphasized by each of the other speakers and my colleagues is just how, much, how important it is to establish realistic treatment outcome expectations for analgesic therapies in all of everything that we do. I know that we're concentrating on opioid therapy, and I know it wasn't spoken about yet, but gabapentin doesn't help everybody. Pregabalin doesn't help everybody. Tai Chi doesn't help everybody. Botox, sorry, they, 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 the FDA uses each specific it's, it's a brand name, I know, but they're different chemical substances. So any of the four available toxins, Botox, myoblox, Xeomin, or uh, uh, Dysport, uh, do not help every. I mean, anything you want, physical therapy doesn't help very, acupuncture. So realistic expectations. Um, NSAIDs hurt as well. It's funny you didn't give that as an example of metoprolol, people taking extra, you know. But still, the point is, the challenge that we have is finding what works best for our patients and establishing realistic treatment outcome expectations for anything. And invasive pain management. Um, there are many people here who do inv interventional approaches. I do some interventional approaches. I, mean, I know Dr. Stacy does. I don't know if you do, Roger. No. But, um, but they don't work for everybody. Uh, you can have a great spinal stimulator trial and six months later, it's just not working. Um, great intraspinal uh, treatment, even for spasticity or pain. So my point, just briefly, is, is let's get a mindset that um, and none of the treatments that we offer at this stage, we're a young field, um, helps. And so we really need to, I think, be humbled, encouraged to do more work, to take the time with each of our patients to be as rational as possible about each of the therapies we offer. This is one of my favorite slides. It's nothing to do with opiates. Um, um, this is an early, early study of gabapentin. One of our colleagues, Misha Bachgonia, I don't think is at this meeting, but he's, he's the, like the other neurologist in the world that's interested in chronic pain. <laughs> he, all right, fine. So, so, so Brett wants you to everyone know that he moved to Seattle because his daughter moved to Seattle, and he's now a grandfather, and so he moved to Seattle with his wife. Um, but gabapentin uh, in the treatment of painful diabetic neuropathy, published in JAMA, um, in 1998. There was a sister article right next to it with, for PHN, same exact results. Take home message here. Why am I talking about this if we're talking about opiates? Because the mean pain intensity level of all people who entered the study was 6.6 .6 out of 10 on the 0 to 11 scale. The people who received gabapentin compared to placebo um, experienced on average about a 30% pain reduction. If you subtract 30% of 6.6, .6, you get 1.98. If we round it off to 2 and subtract it, the mean pain intensity level, if it's for me, I'll call later. If, if, um, if the mean pain intensity level at the end was 4.6 out of 10, all right? So the, the good responders, and this is why I get a little frustrated when I look at things that say there's no long-term evidence for opioid therapy or there's only a one-point difference. Almost everything we do is not as good as we would like it, but I know where you're coming from with the other issues, so I understand that. Um, but so you get 4.6 out of 10. Here's the take-home message, if you're still with me. To get into this study that was published in JAMA, you needed 4 out of 10 pain or greater. That meant that 
a significant, almost majority of patients, or at least half, some significant percentage, after completing this study successfully, still could be entered, still are eligible for the study. So let's be sobered by this and figure out how we can use all the modalities that we have together instead of spending all this time saying, you know, demonizing one or another. Because that's not going to help our patients. And I don't, think, I don't think anyone up here is demonizing, so I think we're all in agreement with that. But it really needs to be emphasized that that's true about, um, you've done great work with interventional therapies, and many of them don't have great evidence for that. So we have to really be humbled by this, but still interested. So what can we do? So we can have realistic, individualized goal setting. So uh, I think, Brett, you mentioned this already, you know, reaching agreement on treatment goals, having realistic goals. Um, you know, people coming in saying, I want all my pain to go away. Well, before you start prescribing, have a realistic discussion about what can be done, what's realistic. Uh, as mentioned already, 30% work but done by John Farrar at University of Pennsylvania and then others have shown consistently, not only in opioid trials, but in non-opioid trials, that a 30% pain reduction um, is, is, is associated with we as human beings recognizing substantial improvement. Um, it, there are two different scales that were used and married to each other. A lot of this da initial data actually was mined from pregabalin studies and then extra and studied in other ways. Um, you may have been involved in some of those studies as well. Sorry, Brett. Um, uh, improvement in selected functional areas. That is great. However, um, um, there was a... a, a a, a, uh, there have been some who have said, do not prescribe opioids unless you can demonstrate functional improvement. So that would mean that the person who's quadriplegic with spinal cord injury or has chronic MS and is not expected to have any functional improvement, who's in pain, only about 60% of people with MS experience chronic pain. It's a well-done study in Yale, great epidemiology study that was published in pain many years ago, so about seven or eight years ago. Um, so that would mean that those people don't deserve a trial of opiates. So we have to, I think we have to be a little bit careful, um, and this is uh, something that concerns me about the CDC guidelines, the emphasis on function without almost an asterisk when possible. So I, I completely agree with function being improved, but there are people who we take care of, and I'm not sure how small or, or great the number are, but there may be people who function is not an, an issue. Should healthcare providers prescribe opioids? These are key considerations. Be honest, to thy own self be true. Do, is the person about to prescribe, does the person have adequate training? If not, what additional training should be there? What methods have been implemented? And we've talked about a number of things to do this safely in your practice, in our practice, in my practice. Um, respect the evidence that's in, in the published literature as well as its limitation for the use of opioid analgesic for chronic pain, especially when used as minor therapy. So if you look at, um, so the, you know, so last year, and this has been talked about a million times, and I don't mean to sound boring, and I may have mentioned this already in a different talk, but the father of evidence-based medicine didn't say that all the evidence that we need to have is in a, in a randomized controlled study. In fact, if you think of it, he, he, it was included, he died last year, but it was included in the definition was the judicious use of best available evidence and your clinical judgment and your personal experience in the best interest of the patient in front of you. That's more than just doing a systematic review and making conclusions. Now, I know that all of us here practice medicine, so we know that. 
But why don't guidelines say something like that? Why don't diet guidelines give us the ability to use our clinical judgment instead of putting us in a position that if we don't follow these guidelines, which admittedly have certain areas of weak evidence, that's, that's, not, that's not intellectually, that's, there's something not right about that. Um, and um, the other issue that's really interesting is that the kinds of trials that are done typically for FDA approval, because we don't get to use medicines unless they're approved by the FDA, right? We can't prescribe them. Can't be, it can't be marketed. Well, those clinical trials, what was that? In Washington, Oregon, we take care of it. There's like one in every faculty, you know? <laughs> See, Roger was nice and, and pro, is, I'm sorry about Brett. <laughs> and I, I invited him, so I don't know why I did this. Uh, but, but think about it for a second. This is not, this is just the state of the state. Just think about this. The randomized control studies that are used to get a medicine available for us to be able to prescribe are not, are, are A, potentially including patients who would never be, in, who, are, who are not in our practice or are cherry-picked for certain clinical trials. The patients that are in our practice are excluded from those kind of trials because they're too complex. So the evidence that we're looking at is not necessarily applicable to real practice. And I know I, I was um, on the Quality Standards Subcommittee of the American Academy of Neurology for six years in many practice parameters. I respect evidence rated. But why isn't observational, which is our using our observation, why is that considered such a poor level of evidence? For what? Is a RTC really the right, the best evidence for clinical practice? Just think about that. I mean, that's something that I don't think has ever been tackled. So the question of who, you know, about who or should not, whether or not a healthcare provider should prescribe or should not prescribe opiates is really a false dichotomy. The only question is not should, but how well prepared are we to prescribe opioids for the best benefits to our patients with minimal risks? So we need to learn how to select patients, and we need to learn how to manage patients on opioid therapy. And that also means we need to learn and respect that they are not helpful for everybody. They are helpful for a subset of people for years and years in some cases that the literature is not as helpful as it could be, you know, in, in directing us where to go, but we need to get those skills. We need to also keep in mind that when we evaluate, and I made this point a little bit earlier, that, that, that we, we evaluate somebody and treat somebody for chronic pain, we need to think about this in the context of opioids being but one of many approaches that we can take. And we need to think what the evidence is. So I think that some of the evidence that was used in Evidence that's using guidelines sometimes is, doesn't involve every single piece of evidence. This is a really telling study that was published in Pain several years ago. Um, the numbers needed to treat is a statistical um, uh, um, uh, process that looks at how many people do you need to treat before one person gets 50% pain relief. So if you look at this, for neuropathic pain, tricyclics, valproic acid, lamotrigine, carbamazepine, phenytoin are the only agents that have a lower, the lower the number, the better the likelihood. Opiates have a greater likelihood than, than uh, gabapentin, pregabalin, mixilatine, SNRIs, and other agents have a higher likelihood of reducing pain in neuropathic pain. Now the NNH, which is the numbers needed to harm, is not reflected here. So it may be unbalanced if you look at neuropathic pain guidelines, you'll, you'll see guidelines which suggest using opioids second or third line. 
And that's a healthy respect for the adverse events and the potential concerns that can occur. But it's not because they don't have analgesic benefit. And you made that point already, too. And there's abundant evidence for the use of opioid analgesics for chronic pain. I honestly don't understand how the CDC guidelines were published by JAMA with editorial review with allowing the statement that there's no long-term evidence. I would respect more a statement that would have said there is no randomized controlled study evidence for long-term use. But there is open label, there's registry data, there's safety studies in which pain levels were assessed. I would have really appreciated that as a person in this field. Because I think that what it's, it, it's, it's not accurate that there isn't. There's only a smattering of, of articles on this slide. Um, but there are serious risks, and we've talked about these already, and we can't not look at that. And so this is, I just mentioned this earlier, opioids are going to be used despite the efficacy at, as second or third line in neuropathic pain. This is across international societies who have come up with this. So we really need to balance the ability to use pain medicines um, with, uh, with recognizing there have been an increase, has been an increased rate of, of, of abuse and misuse as the number of prescriptions have increased. Um, but we need to have still um, access to these types of medicines for legitimate people. The, um, Doug Gourlay is teaching here today, um, uh, and he and, and Howard Hyde is here as well. This was their idea of thinking of 10 principles of universal precautions when prescribing opiates. Um, stratifying risk is very, 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 very important. Um, if you aren't comfortable in, if you aren't equipped, if you're not, if you, I don't have the skills, I'll personalize it, I mean, I do, but if I didn't have the skills to manage somebody in high risk, who's high risk of abuse or misuse, how many of you do cardiovascular? How many of you do bypass surgery? How come? You're not trained to do it, right? So we need to recognize that just writing a prescription is not what pain management is about. It's not what, what opioid prescribing is about. There are a lot of skills, including stratifying risk and determining, do I have the skill set? I am not buprenorphine waived. So I don't, you know, I, I, I may decide to do that, but if I was to take on a high-risk patient, I would do that in conjunction with a, a colleague who can help me from an addiction medicine point of view. So that's important as well. All of us play an important role in reducing risk associated with opioids, and so we need, to, uh, this is mentioned by Brett already, but I just want to kind of emphasize the point. When we are doing this, this is all recommended in, in guidelines, um, but we need to prescribe opioids as part of a multimodal therapy program. This is just a kind of a, a proposed way of looking in an algorithmic way. Patient selection is very, very important. Initial patient assessment is extremely important. A, having a comprehensive pain management program is very important with alternatives to opioid therapy considered. The next part is a trial. You brought up metoprolol. How many people here would leave your patients on metoprolol at, an, at a, a usually effective dose if it wasn't helping them? Wouldn't you tell your patient, well, I hope this metoprolol, usually metoprolol works in my experience, but if they came back and they had 220 out of 110 um, blood pressure and, it, and you know, it was, there was no room to go higher, would you say, uh, let's go higher and put you at risk? No. Would you say, let's leave your blood pressure there? No. You would use an alternative strategy and perhaps take him off or her off of the metoprolol. 
And so this is a trial, telling your patients up front that this is a trial, I will not abandon you, but this may or may not help you is very important as well. Reassessment is very important, and determining whether or not you're going to continue a treatment or discontinue a treatment is important. When you're considering an opioid exit strategy, you might do so because there's no convincing benefit from the treatment, despite dose adjustment, side effect management, or opioid rotation. There's poor tolerance. That mean that it's not poorly, it's poorly tolerated. People have persistent adhe adherence or compliance issues despite a treatment agreement and limit setting, or there may be a comorbidity, set of comorbidities that just is going to limit being able to prescribe safely. And there are possible paths. The most important thing is not to bury our head in the sand and not recognize when it's time to taper. And Brett went over very, very carefully doing that. Uh, there are new and emerging treatments which may that are currently available and are in development that may, at least with respect to the medication itself, give us additional help in preventing bad outcomes. Um, the patient-prescriber agreement is really important, and there's clinical evidence for that. Um, and so I'm just going to go through here. Urine drug testing is very important. Um, and you know that um, urine drug testing is not a gotcha kind of thing. There are many instances in which picking up a urine I mean, I have patients who are on stable doses of opioid therapy who go to a surgeon for, let's say, um, a breast biopsy or, other, or dental surgery, and they're given a prescription. The, the physician didn't tell me about it. I only find out by checking the prescription monitoring program of New York State, which I'm required to do before I write a controlled substance prescription. And I'll have a conversation with the patient. More, I mean, most often it's that there's just a lack of communication and they understand how important it is. Sometimes things come up in urine that are surprising, um, and that's a point for conversation. But doing baseline urine drug testing and periodic is very, very important. You discussed this already, Brett, so I'm just going to go by. Um, there are, if your patient needs treatment for abuse and addiction, um, there are resources for people. Um, and here are some resources on, on the slide. Um, my, you know, you, you know uh, uh, these are, the, these are, there are many resources. And instead of ignoring it, it's very, very important to address this. Um, there are patient counseling documents that are available um, so that you can even make this part of your chart. Um, you can counsel counseling. The, sec the, the care provider, the, the, other, the other person, the significant other, is almost as important as counseling the patient about the risks and benefits. You're working as a team, um, especially in someone who has moderate or high risk of abuse or misuse. So um, there's a Utah Department of Health sur survey that was done in, in, in almost uh, eight to ten years ago um, that, that, was, that demonstrated effectiveness of patient education. It's a formal study to reduce unintentional deaths from prescription opioids. This is a media campaign used only as directed from May 2008 to May 2009. Some of you know Lynn Webster and Perry Fine. They, were, they spearheaded this effort. And while it was operational, there was a tremendous reduction in bad outcomes. 14% decrease in unintentional overdose deaths from prescription opioids compared with 2007. Um, cytochrome P450 enzymes respect metabolic interactions, respect genetic, pharmacogenetic issues um, as well, um, which, which is still a very young field. Um, whenever possible, uh, try to um, avoid. So if you're putting somebody on a antihypertensive regimen that's going to conflict with the opioid because of the metabolic interaction, see how you can reduce, maybe use a different antihypertensive regimen or vice versa. Um, and um, I don't want to believe that we can talk about this in detail later. 
There are interactions of opioids with other substances which we need to, to, to know about. Alcohol. Alcohol with morphine-based products can, or with some of the extended release products, can increase the availability. Um, um, PGP inhibitors um, and certain opioids can. So these are rational things. We are trained to do this. It's, it's rational. It, it's, in, it's good old-fashioned medicine. So these are all the things that we can do. There are drug interactions. You mentioned uh, methadone. Methadone, that we could spend seven days here talking about drug-drug interactions um, and herbal interactions and food interactions with methadone. So during treatment, please keep accurate records. Not, that's not only for medical legal purposes. That's so you know what you just did a month later when the patient comes back and you can see why you made the decisions that you did. Assess adherence with treatment. So that may mean periodically doing urine drug screening. Um, there are no 100% uh, wonderful guidelines about when and how often to do. And I don't think the CDC guidelines said do it at, uh, uh, you know, said consider, right, Roger? Um, at least annually. At least annually. Yeah. And, and that's even in low-risk patients. So it's very important. Acknowledge and deal, not ostrich. Not, don't be an ostrich when you have adverse events. And an adverse event also means misuse or abuse or behaviors that are concern you for addiction. Always have a plan B, and I think Brett talked about that as well. That includes um, withdrawal of the medication, tapering the medication, and alternative um, management approaches. And be prepared to re-examine the diagnosis as well as treatment plan with every visit. We, how many of you are the same person you were 10 years ago? None of us. We're going to change. I don't have any health issues right now. I'm in my mid-50s. I'm going to get something one of these days, meaning that people change. And the diagnosis of what may be causing someone. I took care of somebody for years with um, uh, chronic inflammatory uh, polyneuropathy, demyelinated polyneuropathy, a terrible pain associated with that. And something changed in his exam, um, and he wound up having multiple myeloma. And we diagnosed it in the pain center. So recognizing a change, may, may, there's a reason for that. Just don't change the medicine. And understand the limits of conversion tables, the ability to the methods of rotation, and specific medical situations such as kidney and liver failure. So in conclusion, I think safe and effective and rational treatment of chronic pain is an urgent need. Um, many people experience chronic pain regardless of the treatment or treatments that are offered. Multimodal therapies for pain are available. And opioid-sparing approaches, meaning not, not only using opioids, are preferred. But that does not mean that opioids cannot be rationally used for chronic pain. Accurate assessment is important for diagnosis and risk stratification, and many resources are available, including the CDC guidelines and other guidelines. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, as, the, as the moderator, I'm going to take the prerogative of, of perhaps making the first comment or throwing out the first question. Um, and that is, um, Roger, when you went through this rigorous process and you came up with these guidelines, um, as Brett perhaps alluded to in his talk, was there anything that you learned that was surprising? Did, did there anything come out of this that you thought, wow, I didn't already know that, or I didn't really uh, think that... Uh, you know, this yeah. was happening. Yeah, so, so that, that's a, an interesting question. I mean, um, as Brett um, alluded to, I, I think 
I mean, I, I don't think there are huge surprises for the most part in the CDC guideline. A lot of what we've been finding confirms what we suspected seven or eight years ago, but we have, you know, in some cases slightly or, or moderately better evidence. And this includes the dose issues and things like that. Um, I think one thing we were surprised at was, um, you know, that, that VA study that showed that a very high proportion of people um, uh, are started on, a, 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 so it was, I think in that study, 20 to 30 percent of patients who were opioid naive were started on a long-acting opioid, which just seems, you know, why would anyone do that? Um, and that's why we put a recommendation in there. I don't, I think that we may have thought before that there was no need for a recommendation like that, uh, but just based on seeing what kind of is happening out there in practice. Um, I, I think the stuff on, you know, acute prescribing and how that impacts long-term, that's a burgeoning area. I think there's very little done there. I think that was kind of the first time anyone's tried to systematically look at that. And I think it does underscore that how we use these medications, you know, when people who are vulnerable to the addicting effects of opioids are exposed to them, it can, you know, it probably can have, you know, long-term impacts. And I think we're just starting to figure that out. Um, and that's probably going to be the next area that people are really going to try to tackle. There are some um, guidelines out there on acute uh, use of opioids, but they're not based on, you know, a whole lot of data, at least at this point. Um, and then just, just wanted to respond a little bit to, to what Charles said. I mean, the, 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 we, we were pretty clear, I think, that um, the studies that we were looking at were placebo-controlled trials. I mean, yes, there are observational studies, but that wasn't part of the purview, and I think that's pretty clear, at least in the methods and in the reports okay. that we Can wrote. Make yeah. comment on that? Yeah. Quickly. So I, I, yeah, real quick. Uh, Roger, I have a real question for you. Yeah. The, the prescribing, the, the FDA has um, approved many of the extended release agents, in fact, most of them, um, oxymorphone, oxycodone, I mean, we can go down the list, um, with opioid-naive starting doses. Um, and in fact, uh, let's take one, dependadol. 50 milligrams every 12 hours would be a lower dose um, than if someone was taking the recommended dose of the IR, which is 50 milligrams four to six times a day. And since dose matters and the, an IR gives a person a different feeling than an ER, um, and these are FDA approved for chronic pain, you know, based upon pain severe enough to warrant a round-the-clock opiate, why wouldn't there be some circumstances in which it might even be safer to start a low-dose extended release? Well, I mean, I, I think that the, it's the dose and duration both have effects. I think that the problem with long doses is you just don't know how somebody's going to react and opioid-naive patients. So, so if you guys remember, methadone used to be FDA-approved to start at 10 milligrams every eight hours. And most of us, in, in opioid-naive patients, those, those in, these aren't you know, heroin addicts. And nobody, I don't think, would do that today. And so I'm not sure that, you know, you, you know, the, the studies, the, the doses that are studied in the trials and that are the basis of the FDA recommendations, I don't think can always inform our clinical practice. And the, the fact of the matter is with immediate release dosing, we have more flexibility in the dosing. Um, you're not going to get the same issues in terms of the, you know, the, the, the levels accumulating over, you know, days to weeks. Um, and like I said, we have evidence now that using a long-acting dose, uh, prescription to initiate opioids is associated with higher risk of overdose. I mean, so I think I, I'm not sure that there's a compelling reason to say, you know, to, to use a long-acting uh, medication to initiate. So. Okay. 
here in the front. The reason the CDC did this, at least what they're pointing forward, is that the incidence of deaths from opiate overdose has increased over time. Um, is there a sweet spot that, that they were pointing at that how much they wanted to decrease the amount of opiate use in the, in the U.S.? Or is there a particular level that is being aimed at, like well, maybe 8,000 deaths a year or whatever? <laughs> I mean, is there some, I mean, what's the target here? Yeah, I don't know that there's a specific target. Uh, I'm not aware of one. Um, I can say that before this all start, I mean, op the, 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 the data are that rates of overdose deaths have quadrupled. So they went from about 3,000 to 4,000 to, you know, 12 to 15,000. Um, so I think some people would say, well, we should try to get back to those baseline levels. Um, but I don't think that there's any specific published guidance. They just want to see it start to drop. And we've actually started to see it at least level off. So for many years, it's gone up and up and up and up. And at least in the last couple of years, it seems to have leveled off, or at least it isn't going up as high. And I'm not yeah. really talking so much about the deaths. I'm talking mm -hmm. about what levels of opiates are they wanting us to, to use on average? That we, on average, we, we decrease the amount of opiate prescriptions in the United States by half? Or what, you know. So, well, the sweet spot, the, the people who say, Opioids work the best for me and have demonstrated improve, improvements are typically at 20 milliequivalents and below. I mean, they're low-dose patients. Um, those are the patients who are most likely to have clear benefit outlay, outweighing risk. Um, that's pretty clear to me. Comment on the patient who may be on 150 morphine equivalents per day and does construction, wasn't able to return to his construction job until he reached about that level and is functional, how do we deal with that? Do we try to encourage them to work through their fear and reduce their dose in any case? Do we just say, this patient is stable and functional and requires this much to function? And a related question, on goals for stable people who have already reached their functional improvement and perhaps their pain goal improvement and are stable at a particular dose, do we have a goal for them, or do they have a goal of staying where I am? Go first. I think it's, Come on now. I think, you can do it. I, you know, I think, in response to your first question, um, there are frankly certain states that won't allow someone to, uh, occupational health laws, um, that won't allow people to be on certain medications and be at risk, you know, operating um, machinery, being on... At, high, at heights and being construction certain, so that's, there. I think there's, just, even if someone's stable, I think I agree with my colleagues, doesn't mean there isn't still a risk. Um, so that may be, um, you gotta balance that, but at the end of the day, there may be uh, laws that kind of are designed to protect that person in, in, the, in the public interest. Um, and the second part of your question was? The difference in setting goals between versus a patient who has been under treatment for a year, is stable, has achieved opioid pain reduction and increased function. So do you ever, in that setting, decide maybe it's time to taper? Maybe it's, maybe it's time, right, so the goal is there. Maybe, maybe somebody might be on the medication for, what, three months, six months, 12 months, and doing very, very well. Uh, 
Brett gave an example where someone was tapered and continued to do well um, and, and, and had, so um, like any medicine, even if you're not hypertensive or uh, you know, other medicine, antihypertensive, you may decide if people are doing well at some point to be able to taper so you're on less, less medicine as po least medicine as possible. So I, I would say that's not an unreasonable thing to consider periodically in someone who's stable. I was on the shareholder committee and I was on the phone calls and uh, I thought it was really good and then I started reading into the body of the, the uh, recommendations and you brought it up you said you don't recommend testing for substances that have questionable outcomes such as THC why did the CDC even go there? why did they even make that recommendation? Yeah, that's because, a... I think in the pain community and in the addiction community that's a big issue I mean, I'm not sure why you brought it up, because I think in most of us in this audience, if a pain patient is on an opioid, I don't care what milligram of equivalent they're on, and they're using cannabis, that, has, that raises a question. And I'm not saying that they're going to overdose necessarily, but I'm saying that that's a reward-enhancing substance, and I shouldn't test for it. The problem is now you're going to have people saying, hey, hey, Dr. Orgoff, you don't have to test for it. You don't have to test for uh, marijuana anymore in here because the CDC says you don't have to do that. So my, my question is why? Yeah, so, so um, the marijuana thing comes up all the time. I'm in Oregon. It's legal. So you can get recreational marijuana and, you know, everybody uses it. <laughs> um, I think the CDC, the, the, you know, the, the principle from the CDC uh, was that, I, I, so, so first of all, there was a lot of disagreement about what to do in people with marijuana and opioids. And there is, I don't think there's agreement because there's no good evidence about, you know, whether you need to stop the opioid in somebody like that or whether it's okay or whether it's okay in certain circumstances. And that's all they were trying to say, I think. So if it's someone like you who says that's really important information to me, I would say then yes, you should test for it. Um, but I think some physicians say, I'm not going to change my practice if somebody, if I find that they're on a little bit of marijuana unless there's other behaviors. And in that case, I would say, why are you, why are you, why are you testing if, you're not gonna, if it's not going to impact what you're doing? Um, so I think they were trying to be permissive and just not kind of wade into that area. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think they were saying don't do it. I think they were just saying think about what's going to be in your panel. Um, there's, you know, there's lots of things you could test for in your drug test. They use THC as one of the examples, but, you know, there's lots of other substances that you could imagine. Alcohol could be one of those. What would you do if somebody, you know, was drinking a glass of wine once a week on their opioid? We tell them not to do that, but would you say you can't be on opioids anymore? And... You know, I, I would say that in my case, I wouldn't necessarily stop somebody in that kind of situation. So I think it's a matter of, of uncertainty, uh, lack of evidence, and kind of, you know, just not um, being able to give clear guidance about that. So. In the back. You're saying if someone has... Like, Talk loud.
Uh, I mean, if somebody has a marijuana card, I, I think you document everything you would normally document, that somebody is, has a marijuana card and is likely using marijuana. I think that the, the issue, though, is how does that impact my prescribing of opioids? And like I said, I don't think there's consensus um, or evidence to tell us um, if somebody on marijuana, you know, whether it's safe or effective or whatever for somebody on marijuana to be on opioids as well. So I will just say that, you know, we don't, I don't encourage people to use marijuana, but I certainly have people who will tell me that they use marijuana recreationally, and I don't necessarily take them off their opioids. I have other patients who they use a lot of marijuana, they don't engage in their care, and I say you got to do one or the other. And so for me, it's a individualized decision. Um, but that's based totally on my practice and my experience working with patients. I do try to do a lot of education about, I think, patients. Uh, I mean, in Oregon, people are pretty sophisticated now. They understand the THC versus the CBD components and all that stuff. I mean, this stuff is sold. They're told this, this stuff has X, X percent CBD and this stuff has X percent THC. We try to educate them about all these things. Uh, the link between cannabis use disorder and potentially opioid use disorder, all these other things. Um, and I try to do that if I find out. But again, I don't necessarily say you can't be on opioids and marijuana, but it's all based on clinical experience and not strong data. I guess I would say I test. Okay. So I, and, and I test and, and I discuss. And, and, I, and similar to what Roger said, I did not say you're on opioids, never ever can anybody be on cannabis. That's absolutely not true. I kind of evaluate the situation, see what the story is. I'm also in Washington, so there's Washington, Colorado, and Oregon right now where you have to be 21. I think that's the requirement to get cannabis. That's it. So um, uh, it's still against the federal law, though. So, you know, who knows who's going to be in the White House next year and what their thoughts are going to be about this. So th there's, it starts being a, a little bit of an issue, an issue. I see nothing wrong with having data. If, it, if you're going to use it to inform your decision-making with the patient and use it as part of a risk assessment and a treatment decision about other sedating medications and risky behaviors, et cetera, then I think it's okay to test. Up front? Yeah. Uh, marijuana, I think it's a lot of conflicting information. I mean, we see it right here. Because marijuana is still illegal for federal. Yes. Your license is a DEA license. It's a federal license. So I have been struggling with that question. And now that CDC says you don't have to test, I will still test because it's a federal uh, office. And I, tell, I explain to the patient, yes, it might be illegal in the state, but it's still not legal. Uh, the question to you, you mentioned about methadone uh, that nobody's using three times a day. Starting dose. Start no, starting, starting dose. dose. Yeah. Starting. 10, milligram, 10 milligrams three times a day. So, so, you mentioned about uh, the free spot for the buprenorphine So, so methadone, um, you know, at, at one time methadone was very frequently prescribed for chronic pain because it's cheap, um, but there wasn't strong evidence for its use in chronic pain. Um, the um, and and we have very good data that methadone is associated with a disproportionate number of deaths. So it accounts for something like 1.9% of prescribing uh, prescriptions. About 
10% of the dose, you know, morphine equivalent doses, and something like 30 to 40% of deaths are associated with methadone. So it's a pretty big disproportionate um, uh, amount there. Uh, we recommend starting at low doses, 2.5 milligrams, Q8 hours is kind of the standard recommended dose. And the FDA has changed some of its dosing recommendations. They used to say 10 milligrams every eight hours, and we think that's way too high um, in opioid-naive patients. In terms of the buprenorphine testing, um, SAMHSA funds a place called the Physicians Clinical Support System, PCSSO. They've got free buprenorphine training. It's like seven or eight hours. You get a waiver, and then you can use it. And it's, it's, it's to treat for opioid use disorder. Um, you can use buprenorphine off-label for chronic pain. Some people think it's safer in certain situations because of decreased overdose risk. That's an off-label use. Um, you can also, and you can, that's the, uh, the sublingual buckle. There is also a buprenorphine patch that can be, that's, you know, approved for use for chronic pain. Um, but, you know, we don't have a lot of clinical data yet about whether it really reduces overdose risk. That we think the buprenorphine is available now for chronic pain in two forms. Yes. Yeah. Belbuca, just using brand name, and Butrans. Yeah. 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 So that's the two. Okay, yeah. I, I yeah. thought you yeah. said it wasn't available. Okay. Yeah. Yes, in the back here. Didn't the DEA accept the use of the, the generic sublingual buprenorphine chronic pain? Yes, there are two forms of buprenorphine FDA approved for chronic pain administration. Yeah, we're talking about Suboxone, sorry. Suboxone. Yeah, yeah. But that's that you need a waiver to use Suboxone for treatment of opioid disorder. For the for the new, um, uh, is it buckle? It's yeah, yeah. You're asking trans- if a, a generic form of Suboxone is indicated for chronic pain or no? The generic form of buprenorphine without the naloxone. Ah. Straight buprenorphine. I don't think I, I do not think so. The only two forms that I'm aware of is what you mentioned. Butrans and and Belbuca. Mm-hmm. All the way over. It's very confusing. 
Yeah, so, so medication-assisted treatment, by definition, I mean, the term is a misnomer because medications are really the, what we think is the primary effective component. So it's not really assisted by medications. That's really the primary component. It's really the psychosocial stuff that we think assists the medication. Um, and, you know, to, to, to prescribe buprenorphine, you're supposed to be able to offer kind of necessary counseling. But it's very vague about what that means. And the randomized trials have actually shown that intensive counseling doesn't appear to be much better than kind of just very routine, streamlined, you know, stuff that most people can do in their own practices. And again, the medication probably has the biggest effect in terms of, you know, retention and care, you know, prevention of illicit substance use, et cetera. Um, so I would say that most clinics are probably more equipped to do this than they think, that they, are, that they worry about these requirements. But if you actually look at what they are, if you look at David Filene's paper from Yale, their counseling was pretty minimal. Um, and, they showed, and, they, and they did a randomized trial where they compared a more intensive versus less intensive counseling, and the impacts were exactly the same. Um, so, so it may be easier to do than you think. Um, and a lot of it probably could be done with the PCP. We're actually hopefully going to have a paper. We, we just did a report for HRQ on uh, MAT models of care in primary care settings where we talk about a lot of the ways people set these things up. Um, and a lot of models use nurse care managers or they use telehealth and all these other kinds of things to supplement um, when they need uh, these things. But there are, there's, I think there's examples out there that you could probably also borrow from if you needed to. Okay, I think we have time for one more question, waving. Talk loudly. Say that again. You're going to have to say that one more time a little louder. So the yeah, so, so the question was about what do you do, you know, a lot of people are using are on medication like Oxycontin, 40 milligrams twice a day, which is already above the 90 milligram threshold. And, you know, somebody had asked us earlier about, you know, do you taper everybody that's who's over the threshold? And, uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I think it's an individualized decision, and I think that's what the CDC guideline says, and I wrote much of it, so... You know, hopefully I understand what we're trying to tell people. Um, but, you know, it depends on the patient. If they're on that dose and there's issues, I don't think they're benefiting, whatever, then yes, I think they should be tapered. If I can document and I feel that they are, you know, doing well and there are no issues, then I may not necessarily taper. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't put somebody new probably on that dose. Like I said, my clinical experience is similar to Brett's, that most people who don't respond to you know, 30 milligrams of morphine aren't going to respond to 60 or 120, so my practice has changed a lot. Um, but yes, there are a lot of patients who are already on these higher doses, and I think we have to individualize. Now, if that patient was on 400 milligrams of oxycodone, then I would try to get them down regardless because I think they're, at, you know, I think they're going out at 200 miles an hour instead of, you know, 80 or whatever. Uh, and I think that's a different situation. But again, that's an individualized decision. Okay, folks, I uh, appreciate you coming and staying for the whole time. There's lots to think about. Remember that uh, 
you know, this is one-on-one. -on -one. Every individual requires their own formulation and treatment plan. Um, and if you could document the rationale for that treatment plan and how you responded to problems and all the other things that go on, you're in much better shape. So think, think, think. Thanks very much.